Oh yeah, here it is. It's a very tiny uh, print. Um, so the, the first question might be, how do you talk about an unidentified man in a photograph? And, um, and I guess the first thing maybe to do is to reference another much more famous photograph, the one at Promontory Summit, um, with the joining of the Central Pacific and Union Pacific Railroads um, in May of 1869. And if you look at that photograph, you, you, you see no Chinese, you see no Asians in there, but most of the people who, the workers who, who worked on the Union Pacific side, going from Sacramento east, um, were Chinese. And that evidently was a case of um, a deliberate erasure. The uh, people who set up the photograph um, uh, delib deliberately omitted the Chinese from being in, in that particular photograph. So if you look at that, you'd never know that the Chinese participated in, in the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, but I think uh, there, what I'd like to do today is to, to talk about a few of the events that take place between 1845 and 1924, this, the, the period of time in which the, these photographs and, and the garotypes were, were um, taken. Um, and talk about um, the Chinese in America and to show, um, I hope, how you can take the prism of one ethnic group and, and really begin to look and expand it to, to shed light on the, whole, the history of the whole country that, so, that you, so that we can see that looking at ethnic history um, or gender history or regional history is not necessarily limiting but a way of expanding our, our purview of what we tend to think of as um, uh, mainstream American history. So, um, so what, what I wanted to do was say, okay, we, what this exhibition does is focus on the, the frontier west. It has an extraordinary diversity of Native American images, and, and I, I really think that's, that's an extraordinary accomplishment and contribution because um, it helps to destroy the kinds of um, simplistic, um, stereotypical images that we have of Indians, of Indian people. Um, and, it, and it really focuses on a time when, when the United States is expanding from a relatively fledgling um, nation, uh, recently removed from being a colony of Great Britain, into a real, an extraordinary uh, world power, a global power, because it goes not just to the West Coast, but well into the Pacific by the time you get done with 19, 1924. We're, we are really an imperial um, power of our, of our own. So uh, let, me, let me say the, the Chinese were in the United States by the 18th century. So you have, there's a book by one of my uh, colleagues, Jack Chen at NYU, called um, the, the uh, New York before Chinatown, and it's about, about the Chinese who were uh, here, not large numbers of them, but many of them, and many of them male, and many of them intermarried with Irish women, uh, who were also another group that was um, denigrated, and, and so they got together, <laughs> as men and women do. Um, by, and by 1924, by the end of the show, um, Frank has, has it set for the, um, the Indian 
Act, right? Citizenship the Act. Citizenship Act, right. But there's another thing that happens in 1924 which is extraordinarily important, and that's the National Origins Act, which really sets the parameters of who is able to come to the United States. And it's that in this period uh, of the show that the United States undergoes an extraordinary contentious battle to determine who's, um, who we think is entitled to come here. And there's lots of, the 1924 Act um, concretizes our, our prejudices against uh, South uh, Europeans, Eastern Europeans. I mean, there, it's too complicated to go into, but it completely locks the door on Asian immigrants, except for the Philippine, uh, the Filipinos, who are by now a colony of the United States. So there's really some interesting things that are, that are going on. Um, and this National Origins Act only ends in 1965. And the, and the extraordinary diversity you see today with 15 million um, people of Asian and Pacific Islander descent, as opposed to 1.5 million in, say, 1970. So the extraordinary explosion of uh, people um, is the result of the 19, 20, 1965 Act, which ends the 1924 um, Exclusion Act. Uh, so, so this period is really has a number of very important um, activities, including lawsuits, cases, Supreme Court cases, which are actually I did bring something I did do a show and tell, um, but I wanted to let you know that um, well, this is this is a shameless. Self-promotion thing. <laughs> so I, I did a book uh, in 2002 that you, meant, you mentioned, yeah. 2003, Columbia Documentary History of the Asian American Experience. So what it has is hundreds of documents, including Supreme Court uh, justice renderings and, and opinions. Uh, um, and, and a number of them are, are in here. So I referenced uh, them, and I won't read them to you. <laughs> I'll spare you that. Um, but as I say... This is, this is a period when uh, a lot of things happen. I want to just talk very briefly about, about uh, three events. The first was in 1882, and, and that's the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's the first time in the history of our country when the Congress enacts legislation to restrict um, who, who's allowed to come here. So I mean, we think about... Um, the Statue of Liberty and, and you, you know, bring your poor, your, your, your teeming shores to these mass, to these shores. Anyway, um, in that legislation, the Congress decreed that everybody was welcome here except four classes of people. Then they named the four classes of people. Paupers, people extremely poor, um, criminals, felons, not just people with misdemeanors, criminals, um, the insane, and the Chinese. <laughs> this is in the statute. <laughs> so the Chinese have the distinction of being the first to be ac actually named to, uh, as people who are unwelcome. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then the second thing I want to mention is uh, the, the how race in the world and in, in, in our history is so fluid. And it changes by time and according to the exigencies of the, of the moment. And I'll just mention that 
1922, the Supreme Court ruled that a, a Japanese immigrant by the name of Ozawa, um, who desperately wanted to be an American, wanted to become a nat naturalized American citizen. Um, and he originally, his, his case in Hawaii, there was a federal judge in Hawaii who okayed this, and then it was overturned in, in California. Um, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled that Mr. Ozawa could not become an American citizen, could not be naturalized, because he was not Caucasian. All right? You got that? Not Caucasian. Um, then in 1923, the year after, Bhagat Singh Tin, who was Asian Indian, also wanted to become a citizen. He, according to anthropology, was Caucasian as an Indian. So the Supreme Court ruled in 1923 that Bhagat Singh Tin could not become a naturalized citizen because he wasn't white. Because it changed. <laughs> they said, listen, I know we said Caucasian last year, but... <laughs> so they changed the rules to fit. <laughs> Anyhow, they're really interesting. So I want to end with um, one case that really showed that there were really differing sides of the American um, public that, that um, you know, really were fighting about which things could prevail. And this is the Yikwo versus Hopkins case in um, 1886. And it, and it really shows how important the 14th Amendment to the Constitution has been protecting people's rights. In, the, in 1880, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors wanting to uh, discriminate against the Chinese still, they're still doing this, um, enacted a statute um, which was intended to drive out the Chinese laundrymen. And they, they, they knew that if they did this by um, naming the Chinese, that this would probably be considered unconstitutional. So what they did was they said, okay, all the laundries now, uh, most of which are built of wood, because of the danger of fire, have to be built of brick or stone, right? And you have to come apply for a permit. Well, it turns out that the, the, the administering agency um, granted waivers to this for all 80 of the white laundries who wanted a permit. And uh, uh, this allowed this for all 200 of the Chinese who didn't, want, who, who didn't qualify. So they applied the law to them. So they went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, you can't do that. Because even though the legislation is facially neutral, that is to say, it doesn't discriminate against anybody. If you take that and you apply it in a discriminatory fashion, it's unconstitutional. And it's still a really, really important part of our attempts to try to apply um, for social justice. So anyway, I want to end, end there. I mean, so the, what we can do with, the, with people who are not even in the picture, or <laughs> whom we don't know are in the picture, and can identify. By the way, there are lots of um, groups with photographs. So the challenge, I, I think, for us is to, is to include um, more photographs that we, can, that, be, that we can begin to tell all of these stories. So I want to just show you one. This is... Uh, and, and pique your interest. This is the Tape, the tape family, T-A-P-E. Joseph and Mary, they took the, these names. Joseph and Mary. <laughs> and, and their case was uh, one that went to the Supreme Court. 
actually. Um, so they're photographs. They're, they're really interesting photographs that, that are all around. So the, the next, um, well, in your spare time. <laughs> one, of the cha- one of the challenges will be for us to help you identify which kinds of um, uh, photographs will be useful in the portrait gallery. So let me end there and ask you if you have any questions or comments. So you don't know anything about this? No, no. We know absolutely nothing. That's why the whole, this whole thing is built around what if, if, what if we did know? I mean, he, he looks like an interesting man, so. But we do. You have some because stuff. Because of the photographic technology that has been employed here, the daguerreotype process, that this image was most likely made in the early uh, 1850s, which, of course, uh, mm-hmm. would have been uh, the time when uh, more than 300,000 peoples from the east, from the west, from the south, poured into northern California, California. with the gold rush. And so we don't know where that picture was taken, and we don't know the people who were uh, figured in it, uh, but we do know that this is a likeness that is from uh, this, this historic moment. Yeah. And I was wondering, I was going to ask you, <laughs> could you talk a little bit more about uh, the Chinese experience uh, during the gold rush uh, in, in not only California, yeah. but that it extends All over beyond the West, the West yeah. beyond California. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you, you can sort of expect that there would be discrimination and prejudice. There were lynchings. There were, when, in the period when Chinese communities were established, there were people, there were what were called the drivings out. Um, um, James Lewin has done a book um, called Sundown Towns, in which he demonstrates that many of the towns and cities particularly in the north, but also in the south, that are now completely white, were integrated um, until sometime in the 19th century when um, independent local mo- movements took place to actually force people out of the towns, to, segre- to resegregate the, the towns. And, and this happened to the Chinese as well as African Americans. Um, so places that we think of now as having sort of been uh, white forever, we're not necessarily, so it's, it's sort of interesting. Um, yeah. To add on to that, I was doing some research on another photograph that's in this exhibition uh, and was looking at a, uh, a U.S. census from the year 1870 uh, for the state or the territory of Idaho. And what I mm. found to be quite remarkable was that more than one-third of the inhabitants the non-native inhabitants of Idaho Territory in the year 1870 were Chinese. Chinese, yeah. And that they, a third, yeah. They not only uh, populated uh, uh, all Chinese towns, but and where they ran mining operations, ran it, ranching operations, mm-hmm. but that they also, of course, uh, became uh, integrated into a larger sort of mixed communities. Now, as you rightfully point out, uh, there was a great deal of social segregation. There was a great deal of uh, uh, discrimination uh, for certain within those communities. And yet, uh, I think that you know, when we think of the Chinese uh, in, 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 in the American West during the 19th century, we think of 
in Chinatown, Chinatown or in, yeah. in the gold mines in yeah. Northern California, but actually the expanded, you know, throughout yeah. the Rocky Mountain West, uh, mm -hmm. and that they pursued different mm -hmm. professional endeavors uh, and had different kinds of experiences in the communities where they yeah. found themselves. Yeah. Do you all find it strange or surprising that this individual should have chosen to include his Chinese servant in this photograph? I, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is, whether, whether, um, whether we have a lot of photographs like that um, or, or whether that's an exceptional kind of thing. I can say that when we were developing this exhibition and we were really thinking of the West as a crossroads for an extraordinary diverse group of peoples, you know, we, we knew we had to represent the Chinese in this story. And yet when I and others went out looking for early photographic likenesses, we found very little. Um, that they really uh, are not part of the photographic and visual culture of the 19th century American West. And that this particular image, which we're borrowing from the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas mm -hmm. City, is you know one of probably no more than a dozen uh, known images from this period of Chinese Americans. Of course, you know, because this is the portrait gallery and that we tend to exhibit portraits of figures who've had a transcendent national uh, mm -hmm. impact, you know, we were looking for people who uh, had that kind of, of larger mm -hmm. historic significance. And yet, while we found interesting stories, we couldn't find any pictures of those individuals. People like Qin Lung, do you know Qin Lung? Uh, who was an entrepreneur in oh, yeah. uh, Northern California. He, he became a, a, a farmer who actually became a great advocate for other Chinese mm -hmm. farmers in Northern California. It's a kind of remarkable story of his coming mm -hmm. to America and rise to sort of prominence both in the Chinese community, but also in the larger uh, California community. And yet, there's no pictures of Chin Long. And so that made it so difficult uh, to, yeah. to represent yeah. him in this show. You know, I, th I think where you'll find, um, and the, I'm not sure about, about the Chinese specifically, but I know in the Japanese-American, Japanese immigrant case, both in Hawaii um, and uh, on the West Coast, Professional photographers set up shop pretty quickly. So by the 1890s, there are there are now stores of, of um, images that, and they're likely to be in places like the Japanese American National Museum in San Francisco, or the Wing Luke Asian Museum in Seattle, or the Chinese Historical Society in San Francisco. So they're they're probably um, places that the Smithsonian probably didn't know about. And, and, and were kept um, possibly because they were, like this guy, uh, uh, unknown, anonymous, unidentified, and not particularly uh, of uh, national stature. So now, now that we're thinking oh, we need portraits of ordinary people and various kinds of folks, um, it, it opens the, I think, the gates pretty wide open to, wide to, to allow us to take, you know, take stock of who we are.
what might the, the seated man be trying to tell us by his, by his decision to include his servant in the photograph? How should we interpret that choice? You know, I would start by saying, well, first of all, that he had a servant, yeah. right? That he, he was of a stature and wealth, um, a status that allowed him to, and, and, you know, to have a servant. That tradition of uh, an individual posing with a servant uh, has actually a fairly rich history in 19th century visual culture, painting and, and photography. And there are certainly plenty of precedents, uh, especially of African-American figures who are posed mm. with their masters or with the children of, of their masters. Uh, this was a way to, uh, I think, kind of <coughs> help formalize uh, a, a relationship. Um, to, to document, uh, you know, a, a part of the sort of extended uh, family, um, whether it connotes, uh, you know, power or authority, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's up for debate. But these types of pictures certainly existed. But rare are these pictures in which a Chinese figure is included. Mm -hmm. What was happening in China at the time? Why so many people... Coming over? Oh, well, the Chinese Empire was in terrific disarray. The Qing Dynasty, by, by, the, 19, by the late 19th century, was fraught with wars, and um, both brought by outside powers, the, the British in the 1830s and 1840s. The United States was involved, Japan, um, Russia. Um, the, the whole empire was in turmoil. So a lot of um, really bad things along with natural disasters and floods and fires and droughts. So there was a, so the, the Chinese left, yeah, trying to find work and money. So the Chinese diaspora is really, really huge. It's, it's all over the, the globe. Lots of Chinese went to Southeast Asia. Uh, Indonesia, is what's now Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, India, um, the Caribbean. Um, so now, if you go to New York City, you'll see um, Chinese Cuban restaurants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where many Chinese could stay by pretending to be Japanese or somebody else? Hmm. <laughs> no, I don't think that. that not so much. Well, you know, it wasn't uncommon, I'll put it that way. It wasn't the largest. I mean, a lot of people who came in the 1840s, 50s, 1849, the gold rush, did try to go into gold mining because um, that was the way to get rich fast, you know. And so everybody went and, and did that. But that's how denims started. Oh. Levi? Right to behind you. Right behind you. <laughs> Thank you. Because, <laughs> um, and then, you know, I, I have to tell you a funny story. I mean, in that period, a lot of the um, miners, they didn't have time to wash their clothes, right? So they'd take all these denims or they have, um, they, I guess, I don't know, they'd wear their clothes for a week or two and then they, they'd take a whole bunch of stuff to San Francisco, put them on board a ship, 
and the ship would sail to Honolulu, where they'd be washed by hand. The laundries, and then they send the ship back, and they'd pick up their laundry in a couple months. <laughs> it's funny. Anyway, so there are laundries that are there, um, uh, but they were cigar makers, shoemakers. Um, even after 1869, when the um, Transcontinental Railroad was completed, there were railroads being completed all over the country. So these. The, the Chinese were then, by then experienced um, railroad workers, so a lot of them worked there. But there were also migrant farm workers, as you said, you know, a lot of farm workers, and some started their own businesses, became entrepreneurs, and, and um, others were dope dealers. Um, they, they ran prostitution rings, bringing Chinese women over. Um, yeah, I mean, because they were mostly men, yeah. so somebody had, you know, had somebody. There was a lot of money to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was money to be made. <laughs> so smuggling was still was like today in, in um, the Golden Venture ship that was um, founded in, uh, on Long Island and where the people from Fujian were smuggled in and were um, locked up in uh, York, Pennsylvania for years and years and years. So there's a long history of what, what undocumented, illegal, depending on your point of view. So we've had that well before the current you know, crisis we, we think is, is a crisis anyway with Latinos. But yeah, they, they're... So the, the, the post-65 stuff is really interesting about why you have um, now uh, a Chinese-American population that includes um, garment workers and low-paid um, menial workers, uh, as well as the Maya Lins and, and An Wang, the computer geniuses, and Jerry Yang of Yahoo, and uh, David Chu of Nautica. Yeah, great musicians. So it's, it's, it's gotten really, really complicated. It's a fascinating history, and Dr. Otto, we really appreciate ah, your sure. being here this evening to share uh, this picture with us <coughs> and your knowledge uh, in this in this really interesting field. So, so thank you very, oh, very sure. much. Thank you. Thank you all for coming.